Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to welcome back an author, Dr. Daniel Druckmann, to tell us about um, another of his recent books. He's recently been on the podcast, but we get to have him back because there's a fabulous book that he's written titled Negotiation, Identity and Justice, Pathways to Agreement, which cover, I mean, the career is massive. Um, There's so many aspects to it and so many lessons that can be learned in terms of practice, in terms of research and being in academia and much, much more. So this is an incredibly rich book. Dan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about it. Yeah, thanks, Miranda. I'm very pleased to be back again. I enjoyed the last one and I expect to enjoy this one as well. Wonderful. Well, for those uh, listeners who may not have heard your previous episode, would you mind briefly introducing yourself a little bit again, and then explain why you decided to write this book? Will do. Good start. Okay, so you know I'm Dan Druckmann, and um, I'm currently living in Brisbane, Australia, but my pattern is to shift back to D.C. later in June. That gives me two summers, which my wife and I thoroughly enjoy, more than winter. (laughs) And uh, we get a summer now, and we'll get a summer in June and July back in Washington. I'm uh, formerly an emeritus professor at George Mason's Shaw School of Policy and Government, and that's in Arlington, Virginia. We live in Maryland, but everything's close in D.C. I'm also an honorary professor at Macquarie University in Sydney and also at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane. That's me. <laughs> the book uh, was my COVID project, which was encouraged with enthusiasm by my wife, Marge. We lived in an apartment where I'm speaking to you right now from in Brisbane for two years during COVID with many lockdowns. And thankfully, uh, the Australian state government handled it very well, even if we were not happy campers. I needed a large project uh, that would occupy my time, knowing that I was going to be in the apartment for an, you know, a long time. Uh, I'm not a fan of memoirs in general, and I resisted the idea for a while. I did, however, warm up to it when I framed the project, not as a memoir or as an autobiography, but as a word that I never knew before. It's prosopography, which I define in the early part of the book. What does that mean? Well, it means placing someone's career in a social context where contributions are made possible by a larger community of scholars. In this case, it's social science. I considered my work to have been nourished uh, by uh, a larger community uh, and nourished by and feeding into the life of that community. So with this concept in hand, I was ready to move ahead. 
By moving ahead, I mean I developed an outline and ran it by the most relevant publisher for this kind of work, who is Rutledge or Taylor and Francis. <clears throat> Good reviews came in and they spurred the publisher and me to take on the project, at least give it a try and see how it worked. It was planned to be part of their security and conflict management series uh, edited by the person who wrote the foreword to the book, Fan Hansen uh, from, uh, from uh, Canada. Then I needed to fill a structure, to develop a structure and fill in the content, which I did. Well, that, that makes sense as a project. Um, and I, I can see why you might be kind of going, mm, I don't want to write an autobiography, but I would definitely reassure listeners as well as perhaps yourself, uh, that's not what this is. It's much more, I think, um, applicable than autobiographies often are, uh, which makes it a really useful resource. Before we, though, get into, I think, some of the lessons and information that can be drawn from it, to make sure we have a foundation uh, for the rest of our discussion so we kind of know what we're referring to, can you give us a brief overview of the stages and main points of your career? Uh, sure. <clears throat> this has been, as readers will note, and my colleagues and friends already know, an unusual career for um, an academically trained social scientist like me. Perhaps this is what makes the book particularly interesting, at least I hope so. Shunning academic opportunities out of graduate school at Northwestern <clears throat> in Evanston, Illinois, where my son has been a professor uh, as well, what comes around goes around, which is kind of interesting. I found the, the perfect research institute in Chicago, perfect for me. This was the 1960s, and it was the heyday for basic research funding, even at relatively applied institutes like this one. I stayed there for nine years, and uh, I had then the opportunity to puff up my resume uh, at the early stages of my career with lots of uh, research articles, mostly but not entirely experiments, laboratory experiments. But after about eight years or so, politics reared its ugly head, as it continues to do, as we know, especially from the United States. And the motif of the Institute changed from research to application, that is more explicit application. I realized at this point, uh, I had been there long enough and I needed to move on and did so with an opportunity that came entirely out of the blue, unexpected. Um, I regarded that as a first career turning point springing from a professional crisis. Well, it wasn't a crisis exactly, but I needed to move on and didn't know quite where to go. I had not been on a faculty for nine years post-PhD, so my opportunities were limited in academia at that point. So I had to figure out, you know, how to do this. And I had a, a graduate school classmate, her name is Peg Herman, who said, hey, I just did some consulting for this think tank in Washington. They could use someone like you. And, you know, one thing leads to another. So Washington was calling at the right time to assess my interest in a government consulting job. I had no idea what that meant. The name of the company was and still is Mathematica, located in Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb of uh, DC. This job um, opened my eyes to a world of intrigue around international diplomacy. 
I had participated in some of my most exciting projects during this eight-year stint at Mathematica. However, as in all cases, contracts don't last forever. And at some point, they were kind of whittling down. And I realized that I needed to move on. And I did. I moved kind of around the corner, still in Bethesda, to another consulting firm with the same clients in hand, also in Bethesda, where I directed another fascinating project for three years on political stability with a focus on the Marcos uh, Philippines. The next turning point, keep in mind, I use the word turning point often because that's one of my main research contributions. I had studied turning points now for about 20 years. So I also use them with regard to my own life and in this case, my own career. This occurred with uh, a kind of, shall we say, serendipitous offer, again, coming kind of out of the blue, from the nonprofit National Research Council, where I ended up directing study groups for 12 years. And those groups included both micro on performance issues and macro on preventing nuclear war issues uh, projects. During these years, I took some time out from the NRC, the National Research Council, and I spent some time in Vienna, Austria, at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis called IASA. <clears throat> okay, that was great, and I did a lot of work, which I'm going to talk about uh, later in our, in our discussion. Another turning point occurred, and that was in 1997, at which point uh, a university that I knew very little about, a relatively new university in Arlington, Virginia, uh, offered me a full-time faculty position. And uh, at the time, that was really neat because they made me a full professor without ever being on a faculty. That was a great opportunity. So I'm one of the lucky ones who did not have to climb the ladder from assistant to associate to full. That was fantastic. I thought, you know, I had done adjunct teaching for them. I knew the people. I thought this would be a cushy kind of job with tenure, which came a little bit later, but did come. Actually, it turned out it was anything but cushy, uh, largely because of what I call the curse of academic politics, which took a much larger toll in my soul <laughs> than anything I experienced in, in the private and the nonprofit worlds. And I'll get back and talk a little bit about that when we talk about behind the scenes stuff. A particular severe crisis, that is a professional working crisis, occurred in 2004, which pushed, pushed me to seek other experiences in the world. I uh, managed to negotiate gigs in um, uh, Turkey, Ankara, then Istanbul, Turkey, in Copenhagen, Denmark, in Taiwan, and also in Australia. And they provided ventures well beyond the confines of my life experiences in Chicago and in DC. In Australia, I had appointments at several universities, now going on to the 20th year. And um, this was another kind of sort of crisis, and maybe I'm overusing that word, turning point moment. Uh, when I settled into Australia and realized that there were uncertainties over long-term funding, I had kind of given up half my job at George Mason, and other academic conflicts related to being an American in the Australian academic system, which is actually much worse than being an American in Paris. 
Retiring from GMU in 2016, a few years ago, I retained my Australian appointments, and these years have been, despite the academic crises and conflicts, they were my most, some of my most productive years. All right. Well, thank you for that overview um, and very much for kind of raising issues that will allow us to get into them in more detail. So starting with um, the mention of kind of your research interests uh, and the continuity you've really shown through all these changes in investigating them, where did that start? What sparked your interest in negotiations and why has this been something you've so consistently been involved with? Yeah, indeed. So this particular interest was spurred actually by my dissertation, which I completed in 1966 under the supervision of Don Campbell and Harold Getzko, and I'll talk about them a little bit later. My interest at the time was actually less about negotiation than it was about the emotional ties and constraints of being a representative of a group or an organization or a nation. I constructed a collective bargaining labor management simulation to study these representational constraints and came out with surprising results about the relative importance of the person who brings something to the table, the role that they're thrust in, and the situation surrounding the negotiation. That became my very first publication, and it appeared in a 1967 issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the top issue, so the top journal in social psychology. I was very lucky, and there's a story about that as well. Um, and then I also won a dissertation award uh, from the American Institutes of Research, which really got me very excited about wanting even more so to develop a research more so than a, a teaching career. I was intrigued by those early findings, so I continued for a few years along those lines with experimental research and did another paper, which was on uh, the role of pre-negotiation experience, what negotiators do prior to the formal negotiation, how they plan for it, how they think about it. That became an article which appeared in another very good journal called the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology in 1968. That's also the first research article in this book. That was a pretty good start to a a research career. (laughs) Although my institute colleagues at the Institute for Juvenile Research, which was the name of the research I was at for nine years, were curious about how I got away with doing this kind of research at a place that studies juveniles or children. Well... I uh, made peace with them. (laughs) I did quite a number of bargaining studies with children as research subjects, sometimes in schools, sometimes at summer camps. And uh, we published a number of experiments with children as subjects. In addition to the empirical work, I wrote uh, my first theoretical article and I thought it was an important article, on what's called boundary role conflicts. It was published in a 1977 issue of the journal Conflict Resolution, which I've remained very close to and published most of my papers in. And it also appears the second article in the book. 
It was developed during my years at the Chicago-based Institute. It's a bit of a mathematical uh, approach to studying how representatives balance demands from their constituents or principles against the demands being made by their opposite numbers at the so-called proverbial table. And I developed a formal model of that. I consider that one of my, my best papers. With these years behind me, I was eager to move into the real world on policy and diplomacy, which the DC job offer provided. As I, as I noted just previously, my move to DC uh, consulting opened my eyes to the complexities of international negotiation and the way that they impacted on and were influenced by US government policy. But most importantly, I realized that much of the research literature that I knew well and contributed to on negotiation was actually relevant <clears throat> to my real world analyses. I discussed this connection, this bridge between basic research and real world negotiations in several publications, notably a chapter in a book uh, edited by the United States Institute of Peace in 1997, and then other chapters and other experiences that I had with the U.S. Foreign Service Institute and published chapters on those experiences as well. Much of this work comes together actually in a review article that I did with my colleague and former student, Lynn Wagner. It appears in a 2021 issue of the Negotiation Journal. It's not in the book, but it's cited in the book. We can hmm. move on. Sure. Well, I'd actually like to ask about um, that transition in DC. Uh, is there anything further you'd like to tell us about kind of what moving on to the policy practice side sort of opened your eyes to? You told us a little bit about that. Well, is there yeah. anything further you want to say about yeah, what you took sure. back then into research? Sure. It opened my eyes and it closed my eyes. So what do I mean by that? <clears throat> I realized that in order to do some of the work I was being asked to do and paid for, I needed to get a security clearance. I had no idea what all of that meant. And they started interviewing my neighbors and friends. And when I told my colleagues in Chicago that I was going through this, they were skeptical, wondering if I was going to become a spy for the CIA or something, which I wasn't, of course, but they wondered about that. And uh, yeah, I got through all the clearance procedures and I did some work, although not very much work, on classified transcripts from negotiations. The main one actually was my article, which appears in the book, on the Spain-based rights negotiations in roughly 1975-1976. Uh, that article relied on a content analysis of transcripts which were classified. I had to prove to the State Department that what I'm writing in the article sidesteps all issues of classification. Bureaucracies being bureaucracies took about seven or eight years, believe it or not, to finally agree that the article was ready for open access publication in an academic journal. And it finally came out 10 years later in oh. of conflict resolution. So it was a little bit spooky. You know, I worked in a place where the door was closed. There was a red light that went on when somebody came on the premises. It was, it was very spooky, and I wasn't quite sure this was for me, and it violated my own principles as an academic of open source publication. Uh, but I did learn a lot. I got to know 
very important figures in the uh, U.S. Uh, policy establishment, the most important being John Dean, who was the ambassador to the uh, conventional force reduction talks. We almost became friends, but we, you know, we, I learned a lot from him and maybe he learned something from me and others as well. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that was a transition and it was a, a, a turning point. And uh, I, uh, I just um, kind of fell into it all. I accepted it. I, you know, I took advantage of the opportunities I had, didn't worry too much about some of the problems and I adapted and uh, remained uh, that kind of uh, consultant for 11 years at two different consulting firms. Mm, that definitely suggests adapting. Um, and I'd like to ask a bit about that and kind of pick up the thread you mentioned earlier about the behind the scenes aspects of the career, um, especially things that readers may not be aware of if they look you know, at the things you've published. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about that and the impact it's had? Yeah, I, I would. Just let me, uh, yeah, yeah. I do have a chapter in the book. It's early on, on behind the scenes. I think uh, you read it, Miranda. And um, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I wanted to reveal some things, but I didn't want to go into um, some, you know, difficulties. Uh, so I kind of sugarcoated the chapter a little bit while providing some insight of what happens in order to get articles done and research done and so on. Um, so there were things that happen in the world of academic research that are not visible to readers of our articles. What is visible, of course, is the results of the research and the interpretations and the theories, and that's what's really important. Um, But other things happen, and uh, they happen within the institutions that employ us and the sponsors that provide support for the research that you see reported in these articles. Research institutes need budgets. Consulting firms need clients, and universities need grants, all with enough overhead to house us. I learned the hard lesson early in my career that the researcher, consultant, or faculty member plays the essential role in attracting these kinds of resources. We must sell our projects both internally and externally. My early years at the Chicago Institute were covered more or less by the state of Illinois and also by the National Institutes of Health. And they provided general support for, for, this was the heyday of basic research, so we did many projects that I've already already talked about. And in fact, uh, those were the days, and they kind of spoiled me. You know, I kind of thought that the rest of my career would be spent doing that kind of research, and of course, that all changed. Two of my, during this time, toward the end of my time at the Institute, two of my professors, Harold Getzko, who you may know from international simulation fame, and Tom Milburn, uh, both at Northwestern, kind of brought me into other projects that turned, that turned out to prepare me uh, for a new career in international relations and policy. I had not been an IR scholar until that point. So they opened the possibility for sponsorship of a SAGE monograph, uh, an ISA monograph that was published in 1973. It was funded by the Academy for Educational Development, and the Milburn Project was a very good one. 
it was a propositional uh, development of a whole field related to negotiation and mediation sponsored by the arms con- U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. At that time, when I worked on the projects, while still working at the Institute for Juvenile Research, I, little did I know that these projects actually prepared me for the next turn in my career. So the consulting years were made possible in now by government clients. It was a government consulting company. There was something called a Mutual Balance and Force Reductions Task Force in the Pentagon, who provided very good funding for my work on MBFR. There was the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency ACTA for my consulting on the START talks, which I'll talk about soon. And there was the Army Research Institute and the Carnegie Corporation of New York for the National Research Council projects. The NRC sponsors initially only put their feet in the water by supporting one-year projects, short projects, and then gravitated to a full body plunge into that water by keeping us going, believe it or not, for over a decade. In retrospect, I realized, but didn't at the time, that we somehow managed to convert sponsors into more or less benefactors. Well, we did good work, but um, we also looked forward, as we were doing the work, to the work that still needed to be done. And you do this as a consultant automatically. We had to make the case to our sponsors that we were in some sense indispensable to accomplishing their missions, not our missions. Actually, another book could be written about the strategies for pulling this off. That We don't talk about that much in this <laughs> Another point worth making is that I was well aware of the need to keep publishing, even when not encouraged to do so by the consulting firms or by the NRC, believe it or not. They preferred that I didn't publish, that I did the work that I was contracted to do. So I did this by sacrificing evenings and weekends to my quote-unquote, other career with the hope that a cushy academic position was waiting somewhere behind, somewhere beyond the sea, as the, as the song goes. It eventually happened, didn't happen very quickly. However, having said all of that, all was not peaches or roses. There were also some bitter experiences in this career journey that I really don't go into much in the book, but I think it's important to reveal some of them for their learning value. Things blew up badly with the hiring of a new director at the George Mason Institute, where I was for a very long time. I'm not going to share the gory details, and they were gory. This person was on a crusade to end rather than support careers that were not within the scope of his or her, I won't use the correct pronoun, postmodern ideology and uh, his or her interests. Uh, this person bared grudges and persuaded the provost of the university to support her crusades. It was quite awful, not only for me, but for practically everybody at the Institute. So there's another crisis, and it cried out again for new life. So what was the new life? Okay, so uh, I ran off with my wife <laughs> to Australia and with my kids. Uh, now, let's see. No, kids weren't there yet. Okay, I ran off to Australia and changed departments at George Mason from the Conflict Institute. Interesting how unresolvable conflicts occur in the Conflict Institute. There's an irony. And yet, even though I went to Australia and thought that everything would be okay here in Brisbane, even there, things were not so rosy, not so rosy down down under. I found myself to be on the defensive for many of those earlier years. It was actually difficult for me to adapt 
to the top-down structure used to regulate courses in the Australian, English-based Australian system. I had a difficult time with their grading policy, and uh, students were not warm, did not warm up to my teaching them how to do experiments and how to do statistical research, very anti-quantitative research atmosphere. The coup de grace was the moment <laughs> when the head of school presented an ultimatum to me. He said, Dan, you need, you need to support at least half your salary with grants. We will match those grants and ask you to teach some classes. Okay, good enough. I did try my best to rise to that challenge, and I got the grants with my colleague from Sweden. <clears throat> That's when the justice research began, by the way. However, when I got the first grant in the second year, I was faced with an enormous overhead charge by the University of Queensland. This is hard to believe, but it is true. They, char they took 60, not 16, 60% of the value of my grants for themselves. So you kind of know the story by now. I beat it out of that place. <laughs> and thanks to a very sympathetic colleague, uh, found two other universities in Australia that gave me a pass on the overhead rates. They were gl seemingly glad to have me. I you know, put the affiliation down my publications and uh, didn't have to worry about extra charges. Once again, I think we turned short-term sponsors into benefactors because we managed to eke out a decade of support from various Swedish agencies for the work on justice with my Uppsala colleague, Cecilia Albin. There were many other, there are many other behind the scenes stories, but not enough time to tell them. <laughs> um, well, and I think that gives us an idea that that's an very idea. helpful. But, you know, they, you know, there were stories about a very troubled major graduate school professor, several collaborators who simply dropped out of ongoing projects and stopped communicating for a reason unknown. Suffice it to say that resilience is necessary to sail through these rough waters and uh, this is true of social science research more generally, both inside and outside of academia. So that gives you an idea of both the nice and the not so nice part of what happens behind the scenes. Which is really helpful, again, on, as you said, both within and outside of academia. So thank you for taking us through the kind of process, the the realities, I suppose, of making the research stuff happen. Um, turning back then to the research side for a little bit, I think one of the strengths of the book is it sort of goes back and forth between these to help link them up. So I'm, I'm trying to do that as well here. Um, can you talk us through the theme of connecting levels of analysis? Because this is really quite central to your work over the decades. Yes. How and why have you made this such a key component of what you've looked at? Well, I'm really glad that we're going back to substance. <laughs> My anxiety level has decreased <laughs> with, with those memories. Yes, uh, I think this is probably, uh, uh, in addition to turning points, this is probably the central theme of the research career. Um, it's developed best in chapter 16 of the book, by the way, a chapter that I wrote with Steve Wood from Macquarie University. My interest in this concept can be traced back to the earliest years of graduate school. I was in programs that valued interdisciplinary analyses. I thought of myself as a social scientist rather than as a psychologist, a sociologist, or a political scientist. When I studied social psychology, it was about behavior in context, and I did simulations for that reason. Sociology was about groups and the Durkheimian concept of a distinct social level of analysis, which I was very intrigued by. 
political science introduced me to the importance of international institutions, about which I knew very little. My challenge was to find a kind of, shall we say, a nexus among these levels, maybe three levels, individuals, groups, collectivities, and also systems. And that's been a lifelong quest, not done yet. So I wondered about the impacts of negotiation processes and outcomes on the larger societies that are being represented by the negotiator. I also wondered about how group identities aggregate to become collective national identities. And I asked about how collective opinions emerge from opinions expressed by individuals in opinion polls. There's a body of research that argues for the Durkheimian idea of distinct levels of analysis that bolsters the case for separate disciplines, which also has all kinds of bureaucratic implications. And I write about that in some other papers. But there is also writing that makes the opposite case of integrating the levels. Promoting the integrative argument, as I try to do in chapter 16, leads to porous boundaries among levels such that influences travel upward from micro to macro, downward from micro to macro to micro, and across, across horizontal, meaning there's an interaction process between the micro, the meso, and the macro. Examples of how the levels interact come from, and I have many examples that I talk about in the book, uh, attempts to negotiate peace agreements, uh, the role of different types of civil society groups in the peace process, identity issues in national politics, interactive conflict resolution workshops, and I was very much involved in that earlier in my career, and from how members of the European Union balance national with supranational identities. A particularly interesting example is the way that community activities involving former combatants, government dead rebels, for example, in civil wars, a topic that I think you study as well, Miranda, bridge the negotiation, negotiated agreements with a more durable piece at the societal level of analysis. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea uh, briefly of what I do with levels of analysis. Hmm. I think one aspect that comes in to the levels of analysis piece and also your work more generally, um, you mentioned the word resilient, but I think the word flexibility is also worth bringing into the conversation because uh, mm -hmm. that comes through in a lot of different ways. So what sparked your interest in this and what are some of the ways you've threaded it through your career? Ah, great question. I'm glad you asked. This is, yeah, in addition to levels of analysis and turning points, this has been an absorbing interest and it actually stems from my childhood experiences. We won't get too psychological, psychoanalytic here and also exposure to Milton Rokic's work on dogmatism when I was a college student. Milton Rokic was on the faculty of psychology when I majored in that field. I grew up in uh, a New York City environment where people held on to their prejudicial beliefs, including my own family. Uh, this was a source of significant conflict in the workplace, yes, in my father's business, yes, and in social life more generally. Milton Rokic's work, I don't know how many people remember him, um, was a significant departure from the very famous Berkeley research on the authoritarian personality, which people probably do remember just following World War II. What Rokic did was to separate the content of beliefs, whether you're on the right or you're on the left, for example, from the structure of belief systems, whether they're more or less central or peripheral. However, I appreciated all of that work. 
I became more interested in flexible behavior and the situations that encourage it, not personality or belief structures, but behavior, observable behavior. And that stems from my experimental uh, training. So let me share some of the highlights, just some of them from this research, which are talked about in the book as well. First, I distinguish between flexible bargaining behavior and another type of flexibility, which I call problem solving. So the early years at the Institute in Chicago, I did a stream of experiments on factors that encouraged or discouraged people from making concessions or compromises. And for example, the concession rate used by the bargaining opponent, the size of the first offer, the defensibility of the going in positions all seemed to influence the rate at which people were making concessions. Another line of work concentrated on how people cooperate to solve these kinds of bargaining problems. And my main interest, along with Roger Fisher and many others, was in how you achieve integrative agreements where all the parties benefit. You don't have a result, even a compromise, where there's some loss involved. I'll sneak this in because I'm not going to say a lot about it later. Very recently, we did work on robotic mediation. We found that robot mediators encouraged the disputants to find creative solutions to difficult conflicts. Their flexibility was due largely to social bonding, which was fostered by the common, unusual experience that they shared of being mediated by a robot. When they, when they came out of the impasse and went back to negotiate, they talked and even laughed a little bit about that unusual experience. It created a bonding that actually led to a fantastic, a fascinating creative solution. My most ambitious work, however, is work that I did on something called situational levers, levers, levers. Here I investigated the relative impacts on flexibility of a variety of aspects of a multilateral negotiation on environmental regulations. It was actually a simulation. What are these levers? Well, there are things like whether negotiation, negotiators represent governments, uh, where the conference occurs, where it's located, the extent of media coverage, and whether they were negotiated against a deadline. And there are many others as well, but these are things that are very easy to alter and manipulate to actually encourage agreements. Interestingly, just a couple of findings, representing a group or a nation mattered most in the early stages of the discussions, while media attention was strong, more strongly influenced flexibility in the later stages of the talks. We also did, we replicated this experiment with scientists and with diplomats in Vienna, Austria. The scientists were more responsive to the comprehensiveness of the agreement sought. The diplomats were more concerned with power differences among the national representatives in the simulation. And we did much more. We compared the simulation findings with case studies. We found both similarities and dissimilarities. We did a huge meta-analysis, or I guess I did that, a meta of 80 experiments, and we compared the results of the meta-analysis to the simulation findings with a focus specifically on flexibility. Chapter nine in the book gets into many of these findings. That's flexibility. Hmm. And a great um, note to listeners who want to get into all the details of this from that overview. Um, 
chapter nine is the place to look for this part. (laughs) So thank you for that. Staying in the realm of substance for a bit more, um, can you tell us what's exciting to you about the study of social justice and to what extent has your interest in this area changed over time? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, It all happened with a chance meeting uh, with a former student and colleague at a conference in your country in Kent. Um, I think it was an ISA regional conference. I don't remember that. It led, uh, actually, that chance meeting. She, she actually said to me, you know, I've been doing all this work. on. I wrote a book on justice, you know, but I have um, ambitions uh, to do much more than I've already done. And your work on bargaining, although you don't use the word justice very often, but you do talk about fairness, would seem like a, a, a way of us to work together jointly and multiply uh, both the speed and the amount of output that we can do on this topic. So would you like to team up? And I said, of course I would. So we were lucky. We got a, a modest grant. Uh, let me see. I was in Australia at that time, or I was going to Australia. Uh, and uh, that was the first, you know, when the coup de grace, you know, where the guy said to me, you have to get grants to stay here. Okay, this was our first grant. It was 18 months. And it was uh, sponsored by the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Relations, who, interestingly enough, was sponsoring research in those days. And it was a study of distributive or outcome justice in 16 cases of Civil War peace agreements. We found, to make it, to reduce it to its essentials, we found that the principle of equality, when adhered to in the agreement, facilitated the implementation of the agreements. In that project, we also learned that adherence to procedural justice, that's process justice principles during the negotiation, also strengthened implementation. So we were encouraged by the findings and we produced two articles, um, one in uh, the British Journal of International Studies, one in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. And we we were excited to move this whole thing further and move it especially into other contexts other than the Civil War peace context. So we applied for a three-year grant from another, uh, this time a Swedish agency, um, and uh, they gave us three years. So we analyzed justice, as we said we would, in three other settings. Trade negotiations, arms control, not peace negotiations, arms control, and environmental negotiations. That took us three years to get through all of that. Suffice it to say, at least for now, that context makes a huge difference. The relative emphasis, for example, on distributive or outcome justice and procedural or process justice varied in very interesting ways by setting. And we never did write one comparative article where we actually do an explicit comparison between peace agreements, trade, arms control, and environmental negotiations. Maybe we'll do that someday, maybe not. Well, We kept this line going, believe it or not, with more grants, uh, turning sponsors into benefactors. This time, the grants, we were very lucky, came, there were two of them. They came from the Swedish Research Council. It's like the National Science Science Foundation or the Australian Research Council. That's the Swedish equivalent. In in this work, we expanded our focus from implementing peace agreements Uh, and the other contexts, to durable societal peace. You wanted to take a leap and get, you know, my levels of analysis, get upward, get to uh, society, get to peace. The big finding 
from that work, which appears in that uh, 2019 article, which appears in the book, was a path that we discovered across 50 cases. That's a lot of cases, by the way, that we analyzed. What the path looks like is something, something like this. Procedural justice, when adhered to during the process, produced fair agreements called distributive justice in the outcome, which in turn strengthened the implementation product. They, they adhered to the terms of the agreement, in other words, and interestingly enough, increased the chances for a durable societal peace over a period of eight years following the agreement. But the key here, I think, getting to the justice issues, was that PJ, procedural justice, initiated the process. It was kind of like a starting mechanism. And thus, I think PJ may be regarded as a key to peace, you know, working its way through all these other stages that follow it. But we did not stop this line of work with these studies or with these grants. Uh, the grants ended, and I think I was about at the point of retirement. And um, uh, my uh, colleague, Ezra Kuhadar from Ankara, Turkey, uh, you know, like my Swedish colleague said, hey, you know, there's something missing in your work. You don't talk at all about the role played by civil society, any civil society or types of civil societies in the peace process, which is what I'm interested in. So, okay, let's give it a try. So we used our 50 case data set and we did discover the important role played by one kind of civil society involvement, which we call inclusive commissions. In terms of the, reg the hierarchical multiple regression analysis, that added significant variance to that explained alone by procedural justice. So in addition to procedural justice, we learned that civil society participation doesn't crowd out the negotiation. In fact, it makes positive contributions to getting an agreement that lasts because the society more or less is behind it. That article just came out in the international, in the journal, the ISA journal, International Studies Perspective, and both of us feel very good about that work. We also studied uh, rebel groups following uh, peace agreements. And again, we used the 50 case data set with other colleagues. Um, and uh, we were interested to learn what it was about rebel group activities following the agreement that would lead to or deter from or lead away from uh, this idea of durable peace. And, you know, we went through all kinds of variables, all kinds of statistical analyses. And in the end, we actually found that one variable was far and away the most important one, perhaps not surprising. And that is when rebel groups converted to become a political party, in other words, became part of the political system, that conversion was instrumental in ensuring some kind of a lasting peace according to our indicators of a durable peace. This article appears in a just published special issue of the International Journal of Conflict Management. Okay, ready to move on. <laughs> no, that was that was great. Thank you. Um, and in fact, in that last section, uh, answered kind of, or at least gave an example of uh, a question that I kept coming back to reading the book of, hang on, there's a bunch of different research themes here. We've discussed some already, uh, flexibility, social justice, connecting levels of analysis, um, obviously the focus on negotiations. And so many points throughout the book in your career, you know, you explain a stage and then talk about a publication, explain a stage, etc. I kept having the question of 
how do you decide kind of what to work on next? You know, oh, you've just done a piece about this, you know, connecting levels of analysis here or procedural justice there. What, how do you decide amongst all the different themes and interests what the next piece is? And you just gave us an example of, you know, a colleague pointing out this might be an area. Is, is that usually yeah. how that decision is made? Um, actually, the answer is yes. So okay. let's elaborate a little bit on that. I know that you and I would like me to say something like, oh, I gave deep thought and realized that I'm at the end of the <laughs> this research. So let me now think through where we go next, either along these lines or we change gears and we move into something else that interests us. Well, it's actually simpler than that. <laughs> um, the transitions... I guess they were less a matter of deliberation or taking stock, as you put it, than of opportunities to move from one institution to another and the kinds of chance meetings I just talked about, uh, you know, but also, you know, coming out of various workplace crises when I knew the time was up and I had to move on and where was I going to go? And those are probably, uh, to be realistic about this, the main things that shifted my foot and made my career what it was actually all over the place. My nine-year laboratory career, I call it, in Chicago, took a blow from the winds of political change. Uh, believe it or not, it was actually a Democratic, not a Republican governor who said, everything has to be applied. We're not going to do basic research at our institutes anymore. I, a little surprising coming from that party, but it happened. I'm still a Democrat, by the way. <laughs> not that's important. Oh, it is important <laughs> these days. It is important. Uh, so, um, so, you know, the winds of change, political change happened, and I moved on, and I, it plunged me into the world of government consulting, which I've already talked about. Uh, that world also came crashing down when uh, funding dried up after 11 years at two different consulting for Mathematica and Booz Allen and Hamilton. I moved downtown, stayed in D.C., moved downtown to the National Research Council, where I learned about an entirely new topic. <laughs> I don't talk about this very much in the book, on enhancing human performance. I learned more about um, international relations perspectives and how to prevent nuclear war. And I learned about an entirely new topic. I became a director of a committee on global environmental change, specifically human dimensions. And there was a book that came out really early, 1992, before that human dimension, that climate change movement gained enormous momentum. Uh, and ours, our, our NRC book may have been the first serious book that tackles these human dimensions. It was a great experience. But most of all, I met Paul Deal on one of these committees, and Paul and I teamed up, oh, I think it must be 15 years or more now for research on peacekeeping. Uh, the recent book uh, was the last podcast that we did with Miranda. So, yes. okay, I'll go on. <laughs> so believe it or not, um, hate to reveal my current age, but I was 58 at the time that my formal academic career began. I transferred from being kind of an adjunct contract professor into a faculty member. Uh, and when that happened, I was glad it happened, I did my best to take advantage of what I thought was a new freedom, freedom from having to get contracts every year to survive, uh, which I think I thought was going to be provided by a faculty appointment. And, you know, and I, it was quite productive despite the crises. With my new colleagues, I co-edited a really interesting textbook on conflict. 
uh, we, all the peace re- working, peacekeeping work with Paul Deal took off during those years. I wrote my uh, methodology book called Doing Research 2005. And with Paul, I edited five volumes of work on conflict uh, resolution. And all of that happened, so I have much to be thankful for. Um, and then uh, there were the chance meetings, which I already talked about, that led somehow, some way, to a decade of funding for the justice research and also to this very important, at least I think it's important, theory chapter on nationalism with Steve Wood from Macquarie University, which appears in the book. That's, that's a completely original chapter, never published anyplace else. Two things, lessons learned. Two things about these transitions, but more than two things are worth noting. One is the importance of opportunities, often in the wake of crises, and then taking advantage of them or adapting to the opportunities provided by each of the settings in which I work, getting a sense, diagnosing the settings, here's what I can do, here's what I probably can't do. Throughout it all, I did continue to pursue these three themes, negotiation, identity, and justice. I never gave up on them. They were just practiced and done in different ways. So, you know, so it's, yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Life is full of surprises, as it would be for anybody in any occupation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the way you handle it. And uh, Mm. I appreciate it now in retrospect in a way that I probably did not appreciate it when I was going Mm. through it. Well, speaking of the kind of ways of handling it, um, obviously there's a lot you've already said that can easily be taken as recommendations or advice for scholars looking to kind of go back and forth between research and practice the way you've been discussing. But is there anything else you'd like to suggest or advise uh, scholars looking to do that sort of thing? Yes. Uh, Yes, there is. So how, how should I begin this? So let me say, rather than to think about research and practice as different career pursuits, as many people do, I consider them to be part and parcel of the same career, by which I mean embed research and practice, or vice versa, embed practice and research, which I try to do. Let me give you some examples, so I'll make it a little more concrete what I mean by that. First, um, I designed with the support of the United States Institute of Peace, another very good sponsor uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, we do negotiation skills workshops. Um, and in that project, what we had to do was to write these, what I call research narratives. There were 16 of them. And they covered themes such as emotions, uh, culture, power, alternatives, time pressure, and rate of agreements, and so on, up to 16 of them. They were one or two pages. Workshop participants had to read them. They had to answer questions about them. And then, most importantly, they had to apply what they learned to exercises. And the exercises, there were four of them. It placed them first in the role of an analyst, okay? You're, you're analyzing the following situation. You know, what, uh, what from these research nat- narratives help you to be a better diagnostician or analyst. Then we switch their roles to strategist. Okay, now you're an advisor to the delegation and you're trying to suggest strategies that lead to the best possible agreement in terms of their interests that they can obtain. How do the research narratives help you do that? Then we switched gears and we said, now we want you to do what we do. We want you to design uh, a training exercise or a simulation and uh, use the principles or the findings to design a training exercise. So we're switching roles. Now you're going to be the trainer. And finally, we put them in this kind of simulation 
maybe similar to the ones they designed, and they were actually to negotiate, again, using the research narratives. We did evaluate, and there's an article published in 1998 in the International Negotiation Journal, and uh, we evaluate what all happened with this. And we were happy that most participants walked away from the exercise with an appreciation for the value of research, which was really the main thing we were trying to do, not to make them better negotiators. If, they, if that happened, all the better, but that wasn't really the point. Moreover, one other point, this designer exercise, that led to another stream of research that I did. Several papers have come out in various kinds of journals on the value of being the designer of a simulation more than or over than being a participant, that is engaging in experiential learning by being a role player. We, we found out with fairly rigorous research that they learn the concepts better if they're like us, that is they design the simulation than they do when they're role players. And uh, again, that's not represented in the book here, but uh, that's another very interesting attack, and we're still doing that kind of work. Second, um, we developed a proposal very recently, I'm still writing it, writing about it, to negotiate the release of hostages in Gaza. Now, isn't everybody trying to figure that one out? And uh, I'm just one of many who are trying to do that. So I wrote a first draft of a proposal with my colleague, Lynn Wagner, and um, it's based quite explicitly on research findings. And the findings have to do with uh, this idea of fractionating issues, talking about small issues before you uh, approach the large issues, leaving ideologies or worldviews out of the conversation, cooperation between moderates on both sides. If you can find moderates in the Hamas Israeli populations, yeah, that's a challenge. The other is a Ninchik's idea, positive engagement, which is a really compelling idea from his 2010 book. And also the advantages of bias, not neutral mediation. That is, the bias mediator can sometimes deliver, in this case it might be Hamas, deliver the party who's reluctant to make any compromises. And this comes from the Kissinger experience in the early 1970s uh, with, uh, you know, the uh, Israeli-Egypt you know, Israeli, Lebanon, Jordan, all those negotiations and how he worked uh, with the Israeli prime minister to pull that off as a biased mediator. Third, third idea, I don't know where that pro is going to go, but it's, it's important for us to do that. Third, um, I offered um, a consensus technique um, for getting agreement among scientists, experts on saving Australia's Great Barrier Reef. You may know that the Barrier Reef is and has been in big time trouble. The coral is kind of dying. Uh, yeah, there's a, coral has a life, but it, uh, you know, it's it's really bad, and it's mostly from soil runoff and things like that. So I, uh, they asked me as an outside consultant and not even a citizen of Australia, they asked me uh, to help them think how we can get a consensus about. Uh, from a, from scientists, they call them some reef scientists, agronomists, and so soil scientists, and so on. How we can get an agreement uh, on a text that summarizes the synthesis of scientific findings about these problems. So I, with them, I read through the literature, looked at the, the Delphi technique, the nominal group technique, a bunch of others, and then I had this vague memory that Jimmy Carter did something different at the Camp David talks with Begin and Sadat in 1977 at Camp David. 
It's called the single draft text. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, there's really mm-hmm. not, not a lit- literature that developed on it. Mm-hmm. It's based on theoretical ideas concerning how to increase a sense of ownership in the solution by group participation in the drafting process. So the draft is written by someone else, the director of a project, and the draft is then kind of up for grabs. And all the experts have to do is to edit that draft, not write a new draft, so they don't have that ownership at the beginning. And they work themselves through a maximum of, let's say, three rounds of this back and forth, drafting, redrafting, and redrafting again, until they get uh, a draft that they all agree with. We managed to pull that off in November of this past year. And there is a draft now. We're going to debrief the project in a couple of weeks. But it seemed as though this was the way to go. It kind of worked well. So I feel as though social science of all disciplines, of all undertakings, had something to contribute to these very, very serious national issues that scientists think about, so-called scientists. Mm-hmm. So, so let me summarize what I've been saying mm-hmm. in some sense, in some way. So these examples, I think, illustrate the value of um, evidence-based ideas in the pra- or theory in the practice of managing or resolving conflicts. Mm-hmm. We've also, no, absolutely. Yeah, we've also... Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, sure. We, we've also discuss the value of conflict management rather than conflict resolution for intractable conflicts. So this is the Hamas-Israel dilemma. So it includes the idea of gradual progress toward discussing the larger dividing issues. Don't go there too quickly, if ever. But it's not bad to get a ceasefire. (laughs) It really isn't. It's not bad to stop shooting. It's not bad to have a calmer atmosphere to talk about the big issues. And that's what that proposal is about. So for me, um, a research-based practice provides advantages that I think aren't available to practitioners in any of these fields who don't have research training. I noticed that psychology departments came up with a degree called the Doctor of Psychology, which minimizes exposure to research and doesn't require a research dissertation. And I'm skeptical of those kinds of uh, training experiences. In any event, you can become a practitioner, but I think you're a better practitioner if you learn how to and actually perform research at some stage, probably earlier in your career. Much of what I'm saying actually is developed in a recent article with my colleague from Michigan State, Bill Donahue, and it's published in a 2022 issue of Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, where I talk about how you train doctoral students to have this uh, synthesis of practice and research. Hmm. I was going to ask you um, about future themes or questions that you might want to investigate, um, but you've just given us a whole bunch of really interesting ones. Yeah, I can, I can go on with that if you, if you don't sure. mind. It won't be long. Sure. I, I, can, I can give you some more. Uh, actually, in, in the last chapter of the book, uh, a short chapter, it, it's called Forward-Looking Ideas. I do talk about, uh, I think I talk about five topics for further work, further scholarly work on each of the three themes of the book. So one is uh, on the identity theme, and that deals with this idea of in-group bias, partisan bias, favoring your own group, that sort of stuff. And I came up with these questions that haven't been addressed very much in literature, and they're something like, how can incentives be developed for working together 
as in the community projects following peace agreements? Can social contact be effective in changing derogatory social categorizations? How can we reduce the illusion of morality expressed as a self-interest? And which is the more important motivation for group bias? Is it in-group liking or is it out-group disliking, which is referred to in a new literature in political science on positive and negative partisanship? With regard to values and interests, we have a lot to learn about how to reduce the extent to which value differences pose threats to identity. We don't know very much about that yet. What's more effective, working around the values, as I often emphasize, or emphasizing shared interests while retaining a commitment to those central values? Justice, another fertile area of research. Some of the topics include clarifying the causal chains, which I've not done, which involve, you know, trust, identities, and justice. Also, the roles played by compensatory justice. We've not studied that to offset power asymmetries. How you compensate weaker parties. And the importance of addressing issues of forgiveness before tackling the larger issues of creating a more just or more durable society. Again, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, we've really not given a lot of thought to where forgiveness comes in and what happens to it later on. On boundary roles, again, much to be learned about how constituents communicate with their representatives, about the impacts of divided constituencies on attempts to reach agreements, about the relational consequences of agreements, and the roles played by different segments of civil society, and my work on rebel conversion, sustaining agreements, and contributing to peace. Finally, larger questions also with regard to this passion that I seem to have that runs throughout the book on levels of analysis. So again, I refer to chapter 16, I call scaling up, down, and across. We ask how, this is pretty abstract stuff, we ask how micro-level processes in negotiation and other settings influence the post-agreement community building at a so-called meso or middle level which in turn moves up the ladder of societal processes, including changing institutional practices, norms, and rules. We know a little bit about that. Our work contributed a little bit about that, but there's so much more to understand. Along these lines, our findings showing the importance of communal cooperative activity, I talked about a couple of times earlier, to providing a bridge between the peace agreements and societal peace seems to me to be very relevant here about integrating or moving from one level to another. We would like to learn more about the mechanics or the mechanisms that help explain the way that group dynamics, often in small groups, <clears throat> connect to citizens' attitudes to societal norms. And much more generally, how can we translate these sorts of relatively abstract questions into hypotheses suitable for empirical research? That is a huge challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and probably a good one to sort of end that list on, though. I mean, there's so much there that anyone looking yeah. for a research topic would be absolutely fascinated by. And hopefully people will take up and engage with, uh, which would be great to add. If I can ask a final question that sure. kind of helps summarize a bunch of these things and maybe make it a little bit more pointed uh, in terms of recommendations, what do you hope from all of this about the behind the scenes, the process, the substantive research areas, the stuff you're working on, the ideas that people could work on? 
what do you hope readers take away from the book? Wow. Maybe especially <laughs> readers who are current PhD students or who have recently finished PhDs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've given a number of talks at various places since the book was published. Um, I talked at uh, Columbia, New York, Johns Hopkins in Washington. I taught the classes, blah, 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 blah. So I have a set of slides, obviously. And uh, the last slide develops, I think, six. They're like aphorisms. You know, they're, they're like pithy kinds of statements that might be like bumper stickers. But I actually think they're deeper than that, even though it's just a few words. So let me tell you what they are. And I, the first one I've already talked about, I said that Research and applied careers are not either or choices. We've got to learn and teach our students, both masters and PhD students, how to do both and how to be comfortable with doing both. Second, uh, again, this comes through in much of what I've said, we have to learn to adapt to changes in the way that knowledge is generated and also the way that technologies change while also figuring out how to contribute to those changes. I've been almost like a Luddite with regard to adapting to the new technologies, which seem to me are changing almost every day. I'm even nervous about getting on to this kind of a link, thinking I'm going to mess this up or whatever. But, you know, it's the idea of trying to not go with the flow. It's not that simple. Trying to accommodate changes which can work to our benefit uh, as a field, as a society, so we've got to adapt, but we also have to figure out how to contribute in a way that keeps progress going. Third has to do with bureaucracies, universities, and institutions. I say uh, there's no way around, despite my own personal crises, there's really no way around trying to adapt to structural imperatives of institutions, like the time the head of school said to me, you got to get grants. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And then we'll cover some of your, you know, blah, blah, blah. So somehow you got to make peace with what you're being told. But when doing that, it's very important to also seize opportunities that are presented by those institutions. So when you talked about behind the scenes or one of the earlier questions, I said that it was really, you know, my change from one topic to another was sort of looking at the new institutions and trying to get a sense of what opportunities they provide for me in terms of my interest in these particular concepts. Doesn't always work, but it's worth trying. Above all, I say um, be flexible, since that's a very important idea in my life. Be resilient, another very important idea in my life. And most of all, be true to the reasons that motivated you to develop, in this case, a social science career. To quote the great martial arts guru, Bruce Lee, who you may have heard of or not, he said, <laughs> quote, life is wide, it's limitless, there is no border, no frontier. Adding to that, I say, I suggest the value of learning to be resilient. So there you have it. I oh. leave the listeners, they leave it up to the listeners to judge whether they think that this kind of career was worth writing about and especially worth speaking about. My hope, of course, is that they agree that it is or has been. And I thank you very much, Miranda, for inviting me to do this. It was a joy.
I'm so glad to have you. And of course, for anyone who not only thinks that this is uh, worth listening to, but wants more detail, uh, the book itself titled Negotiation, Identity and Justice, Pathways to Agreement uh, is very much available. So thank you, Dan, so much for being with us again on the podcast. Yeah, and great if you can provide the link somehow through your... Mm -hmm. It will be included in the show notes. That'd be great.